sin. But if you look in your Bibles at Luke 15, this is what we're going to look at likely this Sunday afternoon and next as we continue to look at the Lord's ministry. Uh, and since we're recording audio again, I will say for those listening, you, there's about 20, maybe 30 messages that aren't recorded in this study. Uh, I will at some point start recording those and getting those out there. Uh, but we're jumping right in with the discourse on seeking and finding the lost, which takes up the entire chapter of Luke 15. So before we dive in to the chapter, just looking quickly at the setting of what we see here, it's pointed out by Dr. Luke that uh, the, the crowd is drawing near. If you look at just the first few verses, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So we already know that this audience is vast and it is not of the delightfuls and it is not of the healthy and it is not of the perfect. It is of sinners and publicans. In verse two, and the Pharisees and the scribes excuse me, murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with him. And the Pharisees just, uh, and the scribes help us with our homiletics here because they're telling us who the crowd is. They're pointing to who's preaching and who he's preaching to. The publicans and the sinners were drawn in for this lesson with an intent to hear Jesus. This is their intention. They're seeking after something that they have recently heard of or recently had a taste of or recently found. And then the Lord, just as he did in Luke 14, turns and confronts them with the situation. Last chapter in Luke 14, he turned to the crowd that was following him and he began to preach on the idea of discipleship, of what it truly meant to follow him. And we talked uh, as we were breaking that down of the cost, of considering that cost. Now in this chapter in, uh, of a sorts, we start to see the cost of the one who we are following, what it is for him to seek after that which was lost. The parables in this chapter are given in response to the criticism that we just saw in verse 2, as the scribes and the Pharisees accused him of receiving sinners, which isn't really a deflammatory accusation. They want it to be, but it is exactly why Jesus came, was to receive sinners. These sinners were Jews who were not obeying the law or the traditions of the elders, and they were therefore considered to be outcasts in Israel. And that's kind of how we see the publicans lumped in to this particular group. But they made it most clear by the parable <coughs> that we commonly refer to as the prodigal son, of the idea of being an outcast. And we'll get into that when we get to that third parable. Jesus has already made it clear that he came to save sinners and that he... Uh, is, uh, he's not looking for self-righteous people. He's looking for people of a humility that know they cannot be righteous in and of themselves, not even a little bit. Luke 5, verses 31 through 32, Jesus had pointed out in the same book by Dr. Luke that they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus saw that these sinners, he saw what they really were. They were lost sheep who needed a shepherd, lost coins that had value and needed to be put in, back into circulation, lost sons who needed to be in fellowship with the Father. That is what we see in these three parables. These three parables are connected in, the, in, in what they are teaching, but each one focuses on a different aspect of the lesson. The lost sheep mainly centers on something lost and the joy over it being found one day. The lost coin or, coin or drachm focuses on the search. And the third is 
the third, which is commonly referred to, like we said in the opening, by, by us as the prodigal son, teaches on the restoration. And the reason I keep saying it that way is that uh, the, the Hebrews do not refer to that text or that story in the same manner. They call that story the seeking father. We're the ones that call it the prodigal son. And we'll get into that, uh, Lord willing, if we get that far today. The first set of texts we want to look at is the first 10 verses. And this is the seeking. We'll start over with verse 1 yet again in Luke 15. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. He partakes in them. Remember we talked uh, probably about three lessons ago now of the, 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 the sincerity and the personal relationship that their culture had with eating or dining with someone. And that's what they're saying. He receives sinners and he eats with them. He's personal with them. He's real with them. He's intimate with them. Verse 3, And Jesus spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? In my Bible, I've underlined those last four words. Because he's not just seeking. He's not just searching. And then coming back empty-handed. So Jesus, being God as well, is sent on on behalf of the Father, according to His will, on a mission, on a purpose. Jesus is not coming back empty-handed. He's seeking until He finds. Verse 5, And when He hath found it, He layeth it on His shoulders rejoicing. I love the concept here of what the Lord hath found, whether it be maimed or just simply heartbroken, filthy, uh, weighed down. He hoists it up upon his shoulders in possibly the safest place in all the universe. What can get past the vast arms of creation to get to that which has been preserved on the shoulders of Christ? It is flat out blasphemy to say that he which has been saved could ever be lost. What did he fall off of the shoulders of Christ? Are they not broad enough to hold us in our arrogance, in our foolishness, in our lust for rebellion? What did someone mount Jesus Christ and overcome his arms and drag us back down from upon him? Absolutely not. Verse 6, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either... This is the second parable. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the entire house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. This is a very serious chapter, but I do feel like after the last time I taught this, I should point this out. Men, it is absolutely cruel to hide something of your wives to get them to clean the entire house. That's not what the Lord is teaching here. He's not saying to hide jewelry or coins or whatever to get her to clean the entire house to find it. Um, you probably lose your life for that kind of thing, so I probably wouldn't encourage it. We see here a shepherd is responsible for each of the sheep. The shepherd in the parable takes it very seriously, this responsibility that he has. 
And he's also, he doesn't come back with shame when the sheep is found saying, I lost this. He comes back with rejoicing in his heart. And he calls all together to rejoice with him for that one which was found. The shepherd, in, 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 in relation to the people who would have been hearing this, they would have understood that the shepherd not only takes his responsibility seriously, but he was to repay his master if a sheep was lost or killed. It would have come out of his earnings or he would have replaced that sheep somehow but he would have personally been responsible for that replacement. When we spoke of Jesus as the good shepherd before, the idea of self-sacrifice came to the forefront as he would never lose one of his own. His life was considered forfeit for the protection of the elect he was charged with. Consider the text that we have today plus something from John 6. In verse 4 of our text, we read, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? He immediately, in verse 4, encourages uh, self-analysis. Which of you wouldn't do this thing? This is something similar. He did it, I think it was last chapter of the chapter before, when that healing happened on the Sabbath. And he says, which of you would not loose your ox or your ass to give them water and give them food? He's doing this a lot now in this part of his ministry. Which of you wouldn't do this thing that needs to be done? Which is kind of important with the teaching of discipleship. The Lord is addressing and pointing out that we most desperately needed him. So which one of us would not also see to that most desperate need in others? By bearing our cross, dying unto selves, and following after him. Consider what it says in John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus speaking here again. You recall he sent the disciples across the sea. He came around. He's having a conversation with those that followed him. And he says unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is what we are referencing in the introduction. And he says here, this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all, uh, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Recall, I use the harsh word that it is blasphemy to say that the Lord could save and then lose one. And this is where we get that principle. It is to say that Christ Jesus failed. That he did not complete his work. He only began his work. And he says here, this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in that last day. Could religion alone save and keep? The thing we talked about this morning, the constant practice, the constant sacrifice. What does it say in verse 49 of John 6? Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. They religiously partook in the bread of the Father that came down, but it was to the nourishment of their body. It was not to the salvation of their souls. It was to keep them alive and to sustain them to get to the promised land. They weren't to keep more than they required. They could not store up more than they were permitted to. And they sure got sick of that bread, didn't they? But it was to the sustenance of their body. Sheep are lost because of their own ignorance. Don't take it personal. The Lord compared us to sheep for a reason. They wander away. They fail to see the danger that they're in. There's a video, used to be on Facebook, 
of a sheep that had fallen into a trench. The trench is about this wide, the sheep's about this wide, and his little feet are dangling. And the, the man comes alongside of it, pulls him out of the ditch, and he's just so happy springing around, boop, right back in the ditch again, about 15 feet further down the road. You'd think, that sheep is dumb. Didn't he remember the dangers of the ditch? No, he sure didn't. He was so blissfully caught up in the one emotion that he no longer saw the danger of the ditch and fell right back in it again. We might say, well, why didn't Jesus do something to overcome that blissful ignorance? Why didn't he do something to keep us from such danger? Because we need him. Because we can do nothing apart from Jesus. We see the sheep and say, what's the purpose of that? We see the hand of the man that pulled the sheep out of that ditch and say, well, what's the purpose of that? Why don't we start asking the question, what is the purpose of the ditch? What is the purpose? What's a ditch? Is it not a valley? What is the purpose of that valley? So we remember, we're stirred up at a remembrance of that mountaintop we just got off of, so that we have a longing for the next mountaintop that lies ahead, so that we remember the fellowship and the communion with God and we have a desire for it once again. It's a more accurate description for us to call them straying and lost sheep rather than just lost sheep. Jesus did not lose the sheep. You who are here today and lost, you were not lost by Jesus. You're not lost in the sense that he once had you and then lost you and misplaced you and cannot be found anymore. You are lost because of the fall in the garden. You are fully rebellious unto God. You may have good intentions, but you have no control over the fact that you cannot please God. Because you cannot please God apart from the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus came to seek and to save them that are lost. This is your hope, beloved. Your estate does not have to be your final one. His purpose was to come and seek them which were lost and save them. Note what happens when those that were lost are saved. The shepherd rejoices. The neighbors rejoice. The heavens rejoice. The attitude of rejoicing that we read in verses 3 through 7 is outstanding. And it's all over repentance. We don't like that, do we? You mean having to confess that we're guilty? Having to admit that we were wrong? No, not just that, beloved, but cleansing yourself and never doing it again. Repent means to turn and go in the other direction. It doesn't merely mean say words. It means to never go back again. To turn away from where you once were. In all of heaven, all the neighborhood, the shepherd himself rejoices over one who is faithful in repentance. The attitude of rejoicing. I, I, I was sitting here studying this and I, I couldn't help but comparing this to uh, probably us, but I know many of other, our sister churches that long for revival. You see the rejoicing in verses 3 through 7? I wonder if the Lord would simply respond to that as he did to Simon Peter that night. Feed my sheep. Oh, Father, we long for revival. Great. Feed my sheep. I don't long for burnt offerings, blood offerings, sacrifices, sacramental atonement. I don't long for those things. I long for you to be faithful. I long for you to turn away from such things and never go back. I long for you to sit and reason together what the Scripture saith. We long for revival. But how faithful are we to rejoicing when we see God work? 
Remember, this is good news. This is wonderful. This is the greatest news. The necklace of 10 coins in the Hebrew heritage, this is that second parable, it was a headband that signified that a woman was married. And to lose one of those coins would be to ruin the necklace, and it would be an embarrassment or shame to the woman. So like that coin, sinners bear the imprint of, their, uh, of the image of God, and they're valuable. But here we see one that is lost and out of circulation. Luke chapter 20, just a few chapters from where we are now, verses 24 through 25, Jesus says, Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. He said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the thing which the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. When found, sinners are once again useful and able to serve the Lord. This is their calling. This is the purpose. The coin's responsibility, and I know we're, we're personifying the coin here, but bear, bear this out with me. This coin being a necklace was to be displayed. It was to be present. It was to ever resemble the fact that this woman was married to this man, and she was committed unto him. A lot of things there that God likes, right? Faithfulness, unashamedness, it's a fitting parable for what the Lord is teaching on discipleship. And a fitting parable on the service that he is requiring of those that need a great physician. Again, there's joy in the family because the lost had been found. Men, not because she cleaned the whole house, but because what she lost had been found. This brings out a simple yet very interesting question for us to consider. What does it mean to be lost? It means, like the sheep, to be away from safety and in a place of danger. Or like the coin, to be useless, lifeless, and out of circulation. I know those are tough words. We don't have a lot of time left to dance around what being lost actually means. We can't keep using nice words and softening the blow of what being lost is. Lost is a devastating place to find yourself today. Lost is heartbreaking for the saved members of your family that long to see you not lost. Lost is a lifeless state. It is a cut-off place in which you're no longer part of the vine. Or not no longer. You never were part of the vine unless it's revealed unto you that you were restored as a part of the vine. In the case of the younger son, it means to be out of fellowship with the father and away from the joys of the family. Let's look at verse 11 and read that portion of this chapter now. We'll read from verse 11 to verse 24. And Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. You might mark verse 13 if you mark verses. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of, the country, of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and, in, am, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And when he says the phrase sinned against heaven, this is a common phrase that in the Hebrew heritage would also be equivalent to sinning against the heavenly father. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. <coughs> For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be married. Let us consider what Matthew wrote from an earlier event in the Lord's ministry as we, we begin to break this down. Uh, in the text, the Lord is giving a discourse there uh, in Matthew 18, verses 3 through 14. He's giving a discourse on the occasion of stumbling. Uh, and if you're, if you're listening through these older sermons on, on this set of lessons, it was recorded on Podbean January 8th of this year. But here the subject brought to him was from the disciples. The disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offendeth thee, uh, offend, no eth, offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take thee that, uh, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And from verse 11 forward is the key to what we're getting at here. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man had a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which has gone astray? This is not a parallel account. These are a part, both Matthew and Luke are synoptic gospels, but this is not the same event. This is a previous time in which the Lord taught that same lesson, or from a parable very similar to it. And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Bingo, that's the big one. It is not the will of the Father that one of these little ones should perish. So for more on that event, again, I would encourage you to go back to that sermon from January 8th. Um, and I'd be happy to print the outline for anybody here who would like it. But for what we are discussing today, look again at verses 11 through 14 of what I just read there in Matthew 18. Here we see the heart of the secret. He is seeking as though he personally is missing these ones. Personally to him, they are lost. They are precious to him. 
This is not just number 99 in a lot of 99 or a lot of 100. This is something or someone with a name, something precious, someone that he knows the name of and they will know him. This is someone he first loved and because of that, they will love him. This is one that if we know from John 15 that we can do nothing apart from Jesus, this is one who can do a lot of things because they are with or will soon be with Jesus. They are of a great amount of importance. Note too that he explains that it is not the will of the Father that they be lost. This does not mean that they were lost on accident. It means he will see to it that they do not remain so. He's outside of time, remember? Jesus revealed the target of the Father's affection. Jesus revealed the target of the Father's affection repents. That is the mathematical equation that the Lord lays out in John 3, is it not? Man hateth the light, man loveth darkness. Jesus is the light unto the world, the light, the life, the truth, the way, all these things. And as he is revealed, those that are his repent. Those that are his are changed. And if we shine uh, the sun on snow and we shine the sun on dirt, there's different responses to the sun, S-U-N. It's very similar here. Not every ground is a fertile soil. But those that are the targeted affection of the Father are. Think of Saul there in Acts, which we read recently, when he's caused to bow to the dirt and close his eyes from the righteous light of the Lord Jesus revealing. <clears throat> he was compelled to turn away from his previous direction. And God the Father was pleased. He loves a repentant sinner. We can't say that enough. It is our flesh that hates it. It's a natural thing for us to sit in this room and say, oh, I wish he'd stop preaching repentance. I don't love it. Yeah, our flesh despises it. That old man nature does not like the light. And it certainly doesn't like for itself to be brought into the light. It doesn't want its deeds revealed in the light. It does not want to admit a thing. This is no reference to conditionally repent, the conditionally repentant sinner, nor to the insincerely repentant. This is referencing a truly repentant one. We see in this parable, this third one here, a couple of different things before we talk about the Hebrew uh, uh, connection to all this thing. We see that he made a plan that he was going to go back to his father. He made a plan that he was going to say... He says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me one of thy hired servants. He says a lot of true things. And then in that last sentence, it's almost like a declaration. You know, if you ever repented to the Lord, you know that you don't usually in the repenting say, and you're going to make me or you're going to give me or you're going to do for me. You might say, I would desire, I would long for, I would greatly enjoy. But here, he announces his intention, I will arise and say these things. And at the end of it, make me one of thy hired servants. Go on down to uh, American Airlines, some other industry in the area and say, hire me. They're probably not going to. There's nothing revealed in which they should. There's just you telling them you will do this thing. And this is what he's, he's announcing as a plan for what he's going to do with his father. But the Lord, the heavenly father, requires true repentance. 
And it's not a true sentence or a true frame of words. True repentance is a, is a state of heart, a state of being, a, a, and it's not conditional. It is a changed place. So we talked about this morning, that stony heart replaced with a fleshly heart. And though repentance is what God loves, this is not subject to, this is not the subject of these three parables. Jesus isn't laying out these three parables to get somebody in that crowd to repent. He's not telling them how to repent, but he is showing them the value of being found. What a wonderful, of course it's supremely intelligent, but what a wonderful aspect to his intentions of teaching it the way that he's teaching. He could stand up there like a Joel Osteen or whoever and say, all you got to do is recite this prayer. Come on up. Come to the mourner's bench. But instead, he says, here is what happens being lost and the value of being found. Here is the rejoicing that takes place in places you've never been and never will be for that one who is found. He never tells them how to repent. He gives them an illustration of one in the beginning who talks about repentance but isn't there. We see that he's, he's come to himself there in verse uh, uh, prior to verse 18 when he's came, come to himself in verse 17, the very beginning of verse 17. Let me tell you something. You aren't saved by coming to yourself. No. He comes to himself. He's aware of his surroundings and his situations. He, you know what he's doing there? He's realizing this stinks. He's eating with pigs. Beloved, a Hebrew would rather eat with just about any other animal than a pig. He's come to himself because this really stinks. I don't want to be here. He's not saved. Not just by coming to himself. But we see a change, a lot of things coming through. I talked about marking uh, verse uh, 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 is almost like a social media update that his brother's receiving at that time because later you're going to hear his brother say, he just wasted his inheritance. It's almost like he got that off Twitter, verse 13. Verse 14, we see a, a mighty famine arise. This is not unlike a mighty tempestuous storm that came after Jonah, is it not? This is a, a, a man in this parable that the father is desirous of. He will not hesitate to send a storm. He will not hesitate to send a famine. He will have his own. He always will. Whatever it takes. All these parables are about seeking and finding, and it is the seeking and finding of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are all about the recovery of the lost. The aspect of repentance is subordinate to that of restoration. And repentance is the response to the realization of being lost. Think of the first two parables on their own. Would any have gone looking for a sheep that they had not realized was lost? But the very first thing we're told in that parable is that 99 were still there, one was lost. The declaration, something must be done. Would the woman have ever lit the candle and swept the house? Men, stay at bay. Would she have ever lit the candle and swept the entire house if she did not at first discover the coin was missing? Yeah, I know, husbands, that kind of writes itself. But understand what we're saying here. Something was missing. Something was out of place. Shame. She couldn't wear that thing that had the coins in it with that one missing. Now, she's not, I don't think she's even concerned about telling her husband as much as what the community might think is the status of their relationship or of their home. You see, back in the day when the men were maybe doing a better job of leading their homes, the women were worried about the reputation of the home. 
I'm led by my husband and we're in a good and healthy relationship. I don't want the world to think that there's any problems here. Do you know why divorce and everything is on the rise? We're not afraid to tell the world there's something wrong with our relationships anymore. And what happens when some devilish man or a devilish woman figures out there's a problem in your home? There's a way in. And we have allowed that opening and we've allowed that way in far too many times, Christians. Take care of your homes. Take care of your people. Remember who the Lord's talking to with these parables. Publicans and sinners. He's not talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. The publicans and the sinners are following after him. The Lord is explaining to them right out of the gate some subjects we still seem to be missing today. Rejoice! If one of you who is following me is found by me, rejoicing shall occur in the neighborhood, in the community, in my Father's house. A great amount of rejoicing will occur. Now the Hebrew title for what we know as the parable in verses 11 through 32 is the seeking father. Remember in this parable, Jesus focuses his teaching on the restoration aspect of salvation. He's not teaching them how to repent. He's teaching them on the restoration aspect of salvation. And that carries forward to the father's conversation with the other son too, which we probably won't get to today. Consider, last time we talked about consider the cost, Consider what was spent as we look at this parable. Presumably, the father only had two sons. The eldest would receive two portions. This is the tradition of Hebrew heritage. The oldest would receive two portions, the younger a third of all movable property. This is according to Alfred Edersham in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Not long after he left his father, we read that the youngest had spent all, back in verse 14. Then came the mighty famine, and this is the typical order of things. Desperate need follows poor decision-making almost every single time when it comes to God's people. Remember that the younger son here did not stray, as we noted of the lost sheep in the first parable. He willfully departed. Very different. That son did not accidentally fall into his own inheritance and then continue to fall out the door and then continue to accidentally spend it all. He willfully strayed. He willfully took what he had coming to him, his inheritance. He didn't steal it, but he willfully asked for it before it was rightfully his. And then he willfully spent it all, and then it was gone. And then it was no one else's fault but his own. He couldn't even blame the famine, because if you look at the text, it was after he spent it all, in verse 14, that the famine came. He began to be in want, verse 14, as a result of the famine. He joined himself to a citizen of that country because he had nothing and there was a famine in the land. His diet changed, though, as a result of his own worth in the world. He's no longer eating of his father's table. He's now eating with the pigs. He's desirous of what these, the most filthy beast to the Jew was taking into their bodies. He was desirous of that as well. He didn't belong outside his father's kingdom. He came to himself because he began to realize this isn't where I belong. You see, this father's kingdom thing, I'm going to keep calling it kingdom, not house, because it is painting a very clear picture of our heavenly father. And if you are here and saved and you desire to go and live how you want to in the world, eventually your appetite will change and you will be unhappy. And he will send famine and he will send storms and he will send persecution and he will send trials because you do not belong there. 
And He will gleefully leave the 99 and come after you. Because you do not belong in the world. You are precious to Him. You are valuable to Him. You are of a very high importance to the Creator of the universe. Do we realize how monumental that is? My kids are important to me, but I didn't create anything. To be important to God who created everything, it's a much bigger scale. He even says that it would have been better to be a hired servant with his father than where he was presently without his father. I am willing to bet there's not a dad in here that wouldn't say he'd love to hear his kids say that. And this is just from the flesh, humanly speaking, dads. Which, which of us would say, I don't care if my kids recognize that they're better with me than without? Doesn't matter the age or the season. You'll see it from my father-in-law with his daughter in a couple weeks. He will tell you it is better to be with her and to know that she values him. This is the longing of our heavenly father. He could force that. You know that. He could force that. But that's not how he works. Oh, that we would see that today of our, of our need for the Father, that we would have a desire to come to ourselves and recognize His importance to us. Note that the Father is ever seeking, but He never leaves His kingdom. He was spotted, the, the Son was spotted by the Father a great way off, verse 20, and compassion was already in the, in the, in the, in the holster. It was already ready to go. The Father ran to Him and hugged and kissed Him. Beloved, I know that sounds like a sweet reunion, but it's way more than that. In Jewish tradition, it would have been shameful for a Jewish man to do what this son had done to his father. For him to approach the kingdom again, all those in the kingdom would come out with, with pottery and they would crash it at his feet, pronouncing the shame of this one who had alienated himself from the camp or the kingdom and making sure he knew he was not welcome there. That he was no longer a part of them. He had separated himself. And as he took his inheritance and left the community or the kingdom, they would have considered him taking his citizenship and spending it out into the world. Note that later, the verses we haven't read yet, verses 25 through 32, the older brother doesn't even call this guy his brother anymore. He calls him his father's son. That's how the whole kingdom would have felt about this. The servants and others, as I said, they would have taken clay pots and smashed it in front of them. They would have sought to shame him for what he had once done to his father and to them by proxy. What he did to the father, he also did to his brother, and he also did to the entire kingdom. It was also a shame for a Jewish man to run. So what do we see the father do here? He runs to the son. Before they could shame the son, he takes the shame upon himself and he runs to the son. And before his son could run to him and have even more shame, he runs to the son. I told you, this is one of my favorite parables. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper. There's not even a chance that this son, when he has come back toward the kingdom and his heart is now breaking, and he's becoming something. You notice his, his statement to his father is not what he had prepared. It's very different once he gets there. As he is approaching the kingdom and approaching his father, there's not a chance for more shame to come upon him. His father takes it all. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love. 
Perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. There's not going to be any torment in our Father's kingdom. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Think of this story, this parable, this event. All of the shame removed. All of the torment removed. And none were going to speak against the Father. It was His kingdom. Think of what the Lord was telling these publicans and sinners, beloved. You have brought shame upon the Father for your willfully abandoning His will for you. He stands with compassion in His bosom. He's prepared to take your shame upon Himself and bring you into the kingdom. Oh, beloved, if this sounds, if the sound of the Lord calling you to Himself today, don't hide from it. If you're healing, feeling that and you're feeling that pull to be faithful unto Him, and it checks out in Scripture, do it. The Father had prepared for him certain things that proved his expectation. You have to forgive me. I want to get through this. We're going to keep on going. If you got to go, go. We'll record it. We're recording in so many different ways. Uh, you can find it there. But I got, I've got to go through this. The Father had prepared for him certain things that proved his expectation, that proved that he was anticipating his son's return. There's the robe, and it was to be placed upon him. And this robe is a picture of righteousness. Remember what we're picturing here. This son, this son coming back is not Jesus. I want to point that out. Jesus knew no sin. He wouldn't even paint an imperfect picture of himself. It was that important that when Moses smote the rock the second time instead of speaking to it, he lost his opportunity to enter into the promised land. Any uh, typology or pictures of Jesus are perfect. This son coming back is not Jesus. Keep listening. A robe of righteousness is prepared and was to be placed on him. He didn't put it on himself. The servants of the kingdom, under the command of the Father, put it upon him. There was the signet ring which pictured royalty. And it was to be placed on him. He didn't put it on himself. It was to be put on him. The shoes which picture a restoration or a new walk, these were to be placed on him. He didn't put it on himself. None of you saved yourselves. These were put on him. The fatted calf, which is a picture of reparation, or payment, or atonement. Upon its death, there was dining and merriment and rejoicing. So righteousness, royalty, restoration, and reparation, all prepared for the return of his son. The finding of that one lost sheep. All of this, who's just verses before told his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Luke 15, verse 21. It would have been overwhelming. He couldn't have doubted his father's forgiveness and unconditional love for him. How in that situation, when he wasn't even allowed to take the shame, he was preparing himself to take. This, this, this guy, this boy, this son, he would have known coming back into that kingdom, the, the potsherds would be ready. They were going to alienate him. And none of that happened. That is precisely what is on the other side of true repentance. Luke 15, 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. That's the father's words. He doesn't say that and then say, now let's work it off of him. Let's see that he's penitent. Let's make sure that he understands he was wrong. The father sums it all up. He was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost or had strayed and is now found and restored. 
Make no mistake, God Himself used a lot of instruments to bring this young man to this point. It was the target of His affection. This is what we refer to as the manifold working together of the grace of God, or all things working together for good to them who are called according to God's purpose, which we talked about in Holden last week from Romans 8.28. It takes a new heart to go from what we see in verse 12, Father, give me, to I will arise and go to my Father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son, which we see in verses 18 and 19. And we will finish the outline looking at the older son uh, next Sunday, but there's still so much more. I mean, when you, cover a, when you, when you uncover the, the heritage of those the Lord was talking to in comparison to what he's teaching here, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And I just praise the Lord that we're enabled to understand it, that we're permitted to even see it. There, this parable, I thought it was my favorite before, but as it just becomes richer and richer, this is our Heavenly Father's response to us. Those who are in here and saved, this was His response to us. Amen. You ever realize that? The robe, the ring, the fatted calf, the shoes, that armor that, that Paul talks about in Ephesians is not free. Armor is made at a cost, but it's prepared for us. The fatted calf, it would have taken, in all of these things, the thing we didn't even go into is the, the cost of those things, the time in making the robe, the time in fatting the calf, the, the, the work in keeping the calf healthy, keeping the calf ready, keeping that, that, that calf fat, and probably the easiest part. The servants, they never speak against the father. This is what they're commanded to do, they do it. All of these things come to pass and the heavenly father never left the kingdom. Oh, we ought to rejoice. Amen. When one comes forward and says they are saved to the Lord, oh, how we ought to rejoice. Not in mockery of how happy we think the kingdom is, but in true rejoicing, in true merriment, because these are big events. We know signs and miracles are over, but there's no light thing in one being saved. For God to reveal such a thing, let us, let us rejoice. When we hear it, of it at other churches, we think of, of Tate's son, being saved and being baptized last week. And they're baptizing two more today, praise the Lord. We ought to rejoice. Amen. If we're in the last days, these could be the last few names Amen. on the Lamb's book of, uh, on the Lamb's list, the book of life. Oh, praise the Lord for what we've seen, what's left to be experienced. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to preach and teach His Word. And let's close with a word of prayer.